0: This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. When it comes to investing education, one size doesn't fit all. TD Ameritrade helps you learn whether you're just starting out or an elite trader. Choose from articles, videos, webcasts, and more. Visit tdameritrade.com education. Member SIPC. Also, thanks to Hello Monday from LinkedIn for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Hello Monday is a new podcast from LinkedIn's editorial team about how to get the most from your Monday and your career. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at the Motley Fool. Well, hello. People are talking passionately about brackets. The trees have commenced their assault on my sinuses, and I saw the sun for five minutes today, so it must be time for our March mailbag. Joining us this month is Megan Brinsfield, director of Foolish Planning with Motley Fool Wealth Management. Hey. A sister covered in the Motley fool. <laughs> we're going to tackle your questions about setting up retirement accounts for your kids, how to help your parents if they aren't prepared for retirement, when to take Social Security, and tax optimization in your portfolio. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers.
1: Hey Megan, welcome back. Hi, thank you.
0: Excited. <laughs> Should we start over? No, again? that's perfect. No, <laughs> you nailed it. The level of excitement excitement really matches really matches what we're going for. Hello. (laughs) Hello. Well, I guess we should just get into it before (laughs) things get a little too crazy. All right. First question Are you ready? Try to contain yourselves. (laughs) Comes from Emery. I have a 401k, a Roth, and I'm just getting ready to open my first investment account outside of retirement savings. Yay. I was thinking about making this a more dividend focused account, but then thought that this might be more complicated as there may be tax implications with capital gains. Do you have any recommendations for tax optimizations? Should I just keep a foolish mixture in each account? Or is there a benefit to focusing investment categories, growth, value, dividend, ETF, into specific types of accounts?
1: All right, in general, when you're thinking about asset location, which is what this question is about, there are two variables that tend to matter more than others. So one is the length of time that you have to invest. So if you're investing as a young person for multiple decades, the more it matters to get the right assets in the right buckets. And then the other thing um, that is a big variable is the turnover in your account. So how often are you selling stocks? or collecting a dividend off of those stocks. And the more frequent that is, um, it erodes that um, tax location strategy. So, if you have a long time to invest and low turnover, then having um, dividend payers inside a retirement account is going to be better for you. Um, But in general, you want to have stocks that don't pay a dividend, that are just growing because you're holding them and they're appreciating, in a taxable account where you're not incurring any tax at all until you sell those investments, ultimately.
0: All right, let's build off that question with one from Patrick. I listened to your recent episode featuring Larry Swedro and immediately bought and read his book. Wow! Way to sell, bro. Good job.
2: And Larry. <laughs> and the book is
0: called Your Complete Guide to a Successful and Secure Retirement. Among other things, he asserts that it is generally better to hold fixed income investments in tax advantaged accounts, IRAs and 401ks, and equities in taxable brokerage accounts. What are your thoughts on this? My employer offers 12 or so funds in our 401k plan, but only one is a bond fund. What's a boy to do? Yes,
2: this is another asset location question. And As Megan suggested, the longer you have, the more this matters. Back when I first started writing about this, and it was like more than 10 years ago, people would often cite this study from, uh, uh, I think it was USAA, that basically found that uh, good asset location could increase your after tax wealth by like 15%. So it definitely uh, matters, but the longer you have to invest, the better off, the more important it is. What Larry was citing in his book is some general advice. That many studies have found, which is if you have fixed income, a bond, for example, they're very tax inefficient because they pay income every year and it's taxed at an ordinary income tax rate. So it would make sense to have those in tax advantage accounts. Compare that to, let's say, a stock that doesn't pay a dividend like Berkshire Hathaway, which I own. If you bought that and you held it for 30 years, you'd never pay taxes on it until you sell. So it has its built in tax advantages. So that's the basic idea behind this general advice. That said, some bonds are more tax-efficient than others. So, for example, a municipal bond is tax-free if you live in the state or the locality that is offering it. So you should have that outside of your tax-managed accounts. And then some stock strategies are very tax-inefficient if you're a frequent trader, if you own an actively-managed stock fund that has high turnover and lots of dividends those would be better inside the retirement account. So, it gets a little complicated. I think the best thing for for you to do is to just Google asset location. You'll find some good articles that rank investments according to tax inefficiency. Basically, you start at the top, put those things in your tax advantage accounts until you've filled them up, and then whatever you have left over, you keep outside of those.
0: All right. Let's move on to our next question from Joe. What are the tax benefits, limits, or ramifications of transferring stock to my
1: granddaughter? A uh, great question from Joe, Aww. and a generous one. Yeah, <laughs> sounds like a nice grandpa. Uh, so I. Th- think one of the main misconceptions that people have when they transfer stock to someone else is that maybe they'll get a better tax rate if I do that. Uh, and when he mentioned granddaughter, that stuck out to me as potentially someone who is not yet a full adult. Uh, so children tend to have you think of children having better tax rates because they're not earning any money and they get the benefit of a deduction and all of that good stuff. But then you've got the kiddie tax that kind of comes in as this like dark cloud over that situation because if you have unearned income as a minor, so if you're under 18 or if you're a full-time student and under 24, that unearned income as is taxed Uh, at a beneficial rate, only so much. So the first $1,050 is not taxed. The next $1,050 is at the student's or child's tax rate. And then anything beyond that is treated as if it was taxed inside a trust. So that used to be it'll get taxed at the parent's rate. With this latest tax reform, the kiddie tax actually takes on the trust tax brackets, which are much lower. Uh, So any unearned income over those initial thresholds are going to be taxed at pretty much the highest capital gains tax rate when that person sells. Right. When
2: you say tax rates on trusts are lower, what you really mean is it does not take much income to get to those higher brackets. Exactly. It's surprisingly really. Trusts can be actually very tax inefficient.
1: Exactly. So, the highest rate for an individual is in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. The highest rate tax rate for a trust, you get there over $12,500 of income. Oh, goodness. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that
2: does kick in. So, another consideration that people often think of when it comes to gifting is the annual gift tax exclusion, which for this year, it's $15,000. A lot of people think, oh, if I give more than that, I owe taxes. That's not true. It means you have to file the the gift tax form, which is Form 709, and that just eats into your lifetime unified gift to e- exemption, which is $11.4 million per person. Right? Am I getting this all right? I always have to look at Megan to make sure I got all this right. But basically, it just lowers that. So instead of being able to give $11.4 million when you die, it's 11.3 something something, something, something. <laughs> so people don't have to worry about that. You just have to make sure you file that form.
0: All right. So, I mean, do you have any recommendations for Joe? What should he do in, if he wants to give stock to his granddaughter then?
1: So, if the granddaughter receives the stock, she can hang on to it until she's beyond those kiddie tax age rules, and sell it when she's a young adult, probably still in a very beneficial tax bracket. Um, the other thing he could do, which is a little morbid, is to hang on to that stock until he passes away. And then there's a step up in basis, and his granddaughter, whoever he chooses, would receive that stock with no gains built in at all. It would be tax free if they received it and immediately sold it.
2: Right.
0: Is, is so- it a pain in the patoot to transfer stock to someone?
1: Generally, no. No,
0: you just go to your broker and you're like, I want to give. The, these five shares of Google to this person's brokerage account.
2: Generally speaking, oh,
0: can oh. I do that with anyone?
2: Uh, sure, you can give me some if you'd like.
0: No, yeah, like seriously, <laughs> could I just be like, I want to give, I want to give you some of my stock? I could just do that. Sure. Oh,
2: I mean, they have to open an account and all that.
0: Oh, Okay. Next question comes from William. I'm almost sixty-nine, and between my wife and me, we receive twenty-one thousand from a pension and twenty-eight thousand from Social Security each year. Our IRA is valued at 130,000 and we have other investments also worth 130,000. As we draw down the IRA account, we will move the net amount after taxes to a taxable account. The long-term gains and qualified dividends from this account won't be taxed, though it may increase the amount of Social Security that is taxable. Should we draw out large amounts from the IRA but keep our income below one hundred thousand to stay in the twelve percent tax bracket, or pull out minimum amounts and leave the taxes to the ones who later inherit this account? They are in a higher tax bracket at this time.
2: Well, William, uh, a couple of things. The general rule for when to withdraw money from your accounts in retirement if you have different accounts of different types is to withdraw money from the taxable account first and leave your retirement accounts alone. Unfortunately, at some point, you do have to take money out of your traditional accounts, 70 and a half, and it sounds like that's what William is thinking about because he's he's getting close to that age. It also sounds like he doesn't need the money because he plans to just take that money out and then put it in a taxable account. He's saying that the dividends and capital gains will be free of taxes. That's because, below a certain threshold and a certain tax bracket, you actually pay no taxes on dividends and capital gains, as long as they're qualified dividends and long-term capital gains. So, it sounds to me like what he's thinking is, maybe he should take advantage of that as much as possible to get money out of the IRAs, set that new cost basis, because it's eventually going to be left to his kids, So it's essentially saving his kids some taxes, because if he he leaves it in the IRA, when you inherit an IRA and take the money out, it's all taxable. So it sounds to me, Megan, I don't know if you agree with that. that sounds like that's what he's trying to do, to lower the tax burden of the people who are eventually going to inherit this money.
1: Yeah, it sounds like that's what he's trying to do. it's especially nice of him, I thought when I first yeah. saw this question. I was like, "You're already leaving them money. You want to make it like tax efficient for them too? Like, They'll yeah. never appreciate yeah. it. They don't know what you went through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the troubles you've seen. Yeah, yeah. the uh, taxes you've avoided. <laughs> yeah, all for them. Uh, so yeah, one thing to kind of consider here is that they seem to be in a in a place where they can afford to take on a little bit more tax burden each year. So, um, just referencing my handy-dandy tax bracket sheet, the other bracket Which we all have, by the way. <laughs> Pull it out of you. Yeah, That's <laughs> right, the other March brackets. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, as a married couple filing jointly, you can have $77,400 of income before you're taxed at the 22% rate. Everything under that is 12%. So if you consider the fact that you have to subtract a $24,000 standard deduction to get there in the first place, you could have gross income, almost $100,000 and pay 12% on that. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be extremely attractive Uh, compared to almost any (laughs) recipient's tax rate. So I think that's really wise of them to do Uh, basically year to year because they're getting to that 70 range. They're going to have a minimum that they have to withdraw, but they could withdraw extra up to that roughly $100,000 threshold um, in order to increase the tax efficiency even further.
2: Yeah, I would say that the answer is question on whether I would do that or not. Clearly, he's he's able to live. They're able to live off the Social Security and the pension. But when you look at their actual savings, total two hundred sixty thousand dollars for a retiree, that's not actually a whole lot, and it may not be enough of a cushion if later on they have higher health expenses or long term care. So I would say just make sure that you're taking care of yourself. I like mm-hmm. the fact that you're trying to be more generous to your heirs, but just looking at the number of assets that you have, I'm, I, I would. I would still do everything you can to maximize your situation first.
1: Yeah, I think that's fair because the other thing is like they're not going to die at the same time, right? So there might be some loss of either social security and or pension that then requires a higher reliance on those savings.
2: Yeah, if with every retirement plan with a married couple, you always have to analyze what's going to happen if one spouse dies, what's going to happen if another spouse dies and see how that affects both income as well as expenses.
0: So bottom line, William, that's really sweet of you, but we're giving you permission to look out for yourself first. (laughs) Be selfish. Exactly. All right, next question comes from Ian. I'm in a fortunate situation with my parents being able to help my wife and me with a down payment on a home that we plan to purchase in the next two to three years once we get out of the ridiculously priced Silicon Valley. For their own tax financial purposes, my parents gifted us some equities. I have had these stocks for about a month and they've taken quite a hit as the market has dropped. I'm interested in the tax implications if I were to wait to remove them from the brokerage and into our savings once they've gotten back up to the original amount gifted to us or hopefully a bit more. If I sell the equity when it is more than the amount of the gift, am I taxed at any amount greater than the initial gift? I'm under the impression that I would not be taxed on the initial gift as it is under the taxable gift amount allowed between family members. Hooray for parents and grandparents, huh? They're so generous (laughs) on this show today. Exactly.
1: So, Ian received some stock from his parents. I think the first misconception that he has in the question is that when he received that stock, that it was valued at its market rate, uh, which is not the case. In fact, when he received that stock, he receives the same basis as his parents had. So,
0: if they bought it at 10 and it's now at 12... It's as if he bought it at 10. Correct. Exactly. Yes.
1: And then the second thing that he sort of uh, misunderstood here is that when you receive a gift, there's no tax implication as the recipient of a gift. It's just the person transferring that has to pay attention to those annual limits every year. Uh, So that's one thing to keep in mind. If you're the recipient of a gift, you don't have to worry about the amount that it is.
2: Right. So he's received this gift, so he needs to, first of all, know what his parents' basis on the gift was, on the stock. He says it's gone down since he's gotten it. If it is below their cost basis, he can sell it and take the loss and and write that off on his taxes. Another issue here, though, is that he wants to spend the money in two to three years, Mm. and he's inherited stock. And our general rule is, any money you need in the next two to three years probably shouldn't be in the stock market anyhow. So, he's talking about waiting until the stocks recover and then selling, and that's always a very difficult short-term thing to time. So, my general advice to him would be, I would just sell that and keep it in cash. And then when tax time comes around, he just has to ask his parents what the cost basis on those stocks were.
1: I thought you were going to say, just ask his parents for more money. That's true, too. <laughs> that
2: If that works, hey. Go for it.
0: <laughs> Alright, next question comes to us from uh, someone who wants to stay anonymous. My question is about how to best prepare my parents for retirement who are 50 and 60 years old and have little to no savings. My suggestion was to invest in a solo 401 k and a Roth IRA and try to contribute 30% of their household income for the next 10 years with about 60% stocks and 40% bonds. Is there a faster but still relatively safe way for them to maximize savings for retirement?"
2: Uh, Well, first of all, Anonymous, good for you for trying to help your parents. Um, They're definitely going to be in a tough situation. You don't say whether they have a pension or not, but I'm going to assume that they don't. Mm -hmm. But hopefully, they do. Um, I would think this is a situation I've talked on the show before. How as a country we need to start thinking as of 70 as the new 65. Like more and more people just really have to look at 70 as a retirement age. So you're right to to suggest that to your parents they should do this for at least 10 years but I would say that's really only true for the 60-year-old. I'm going to assume that's the dad, since most couples, the dad, the husband's older. The 50-year-old, probably the wife I'm assuming here, is only 50. So, I would think that she also would have to work longer and should shoot for 70 as well. Because if they're at this age and they don't have anything saved, they just need to look at working longer. I think a 60% stocks, 40% bonds portfolio is fine for the 60-year-old who's going to retire in, in 10 years. But the fifty year old, if if she ends up working for twenty years, I think you could go all stocks at this point, especially if you're just starting to save, you're just putting in a few hundred dollars a month. Whatever happens to the stock market in the next few years is actually not gonna be that big of a deal because you're just starting out. You've got twenty years ahead of you being and you're trying to catch up. I think an all stock portfolio is perfectly fine for the next five years or so. And the other thing I would just say to them is I don't know if they own a home or not, but home equity is probably going to play a big role in their situation if they do, whether they downsize or they get a reverse mortgage. So, another somewhat safe way to improve their prospects is to pay down the mortgage sooner so that they own the home outright, so that when they sell it, they either get more equity, or if they do a reverse mortgage, they'll get more from it.
0: This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. You know that feeling when you actually wake up early to hit that gym? Well, get the same sense of satisfaction when you roll over your old 401k with TD Ameritrade. Their team of specialists handle the hassle. They'll even call your old provider. Get up to $600 when you roll over your old 401k into an IRA. Visit tdameritrade.com slash rollover to learn about retirement plan alternatives. Offer conditions and restrictions. Member SIPC. This episode of Motley Fool Answers is brought to you by LinkedIn's Hello Monday podcast. What if Monday became something we could look forward to? Hello Monday examines work, how to like it, how to change it, and maybe even how to love it. Each week, I love my work you love your work?
2: I do love my work.
0: All right, You have to say that because you're with co-workers. <laughs> Each week, Jesse Hempel sits down with featured guests to investigate the role work plays in our lives. She talks to people like Seth Meyer, the former SNL head writer and now the host of Late Night on NBC, about how to nurture and retain great talent. It's a fun show to learn about how influential people work and how what works for them could work for you, too. Find Hello Monday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Next question comes from Matt. When my grandfather needed nursing home care several years ago, it quickly became apparent why he was such an advocate for long term care insurance. He and my grandmother gave me many gifts over the years, few more important than financial literacy and no small amount of security. However, Apparently, they also gave me a genetic disposition for worrying. Let's call it prudent preparedness or awfulizing.
2: I like that. I like that. We just call it awfulizing (laughs) here.
0: Fine, prudent preparedness. Now, my wife and I are in our late 30s, and I'm wondering if it's too soon to start thinking about long-term care policies of our own. The conventional wisdom seems to be to start that process in your early 50s, but I'm curious if there's any hidden disadvantages to beginning sooner.
1: All right. So when it comes to worrisomeness, you are like the dream client of insurance salesmen everywhere. Uh, So I just want to caution that you should go into any insurance situation with uh, with prudence. Um, Now. In your 30s, I would argue that long-term care is not your biggest risk. Um, you know, you're, you mentioned being married. I don't know if you have children. But if you do have children, you should be thinking about what if something happens to you that is not long-term care. Long-term care is really um, – Typically happens to people at the towards the end of their lives. So, what about if you were to pass suddenly, or if you became disabled? Those are two really big risks in your 30s because most of your financial plan is reti- relying on your future earning potential. So, if that is lost, then you have suddenly really chopped off your your knees yourself at the kneecap. So, um, I would argue that. Starting with a long-term care policy in your 30s, um, one of the downsides to that is that you're going to be paying premiums for a really long time, 30, 40 years before you may ever get the benefit of that policy. Um, I was talking to an insurance agent recently who said they price policies based on the fact that they want to get like 10 good years of premiums out of somebody before a benefit is collected. So, again, you're just setting yourself up for forking over a lot of money if you're starting in your 30s with this type of policy.
2: Yeah. We talked before on the show about how the long-term care insurance industry has really struggled. used to be over 100 providers, now there's down to about a half-dozen. uh, th- because it bought an insurance company, is on the hook for a lot of long-term care, and they just announced that they're going to have to increase premiums like like a total of $1.5 billion something <laughs> oh, like that. Wow. So, often when you buy a policy, you'll be told by the agent and the premiums probably won't go up, but that's not true, they generally do. The biggest provider of long-term care insurance is Genworth, and they have just decided to start stop selling uh, policies through agents and only directly through Genworth itself, so they're trying to cut costs by those cutting out those intermediaries. It's just always struggled. So you're looking at a situation of, of jumping into a type of insurance that you're going to hold on to for 40 or 50 years in an industry that has really struggled over just the last 20. So, you're taking on a lot of risk with, by taking on uh, something like that now. So, really, what you do if you don't have the insurance, you just make sure that you save a lot of money. And you, Just by reading your note, I can tell you're probably already doing that. And if you have a sizable portfolio, by the time you're in your 70s and 80s and need long-term care, you're going to be okay.
0: Alright, next question comes from Vic. I'm 27 and have three major life events all at once. First two are, one, I'm getting married later this year, and two, I'm buying a house. I've saved up quite a bit for both transactions, but afterwards I only have a 401k worth 80,000 and an emergency fund of three months of living expenses. Third major event is my parents, both elderly and sick, will move in with me and I'll have to take care of them. My questions are, how much should I have in emergency funds as I will have a mortgage plus two dependents? Should my wife and I have a joint emergency fund or should we have separate emergency funds? After building up an emergency fund, what should I prioritize with any extra income—paying down the mortgage or building up a brokerage account?
2: Well, congrats, Vic, on getting married and the new house. Yeah, um, and, and also, way to be
0: a great son. Yes, taking care of your parents. Yeah, and
2: also congrats on having eighty thousand dollars in your four hundred one k at age twenty-seven, Jeez, which yeah. you have way more than the average twenty-seven-year-old, and actually more than the average American. So. Right,
0: <laughs> <laughs> more than the average anything.
2: Yeah. Uh, so that's. So that's great. Um, so to answer your questions specifically, how much should I have in emergency funds, uh, I would say that you, this is the type of situation where a bigger one is probably better because you're not on the hook for the mortgage. You don't know what the medical costs for your parents are going to be. Um, so yeah, having more cash on the side is a good idea. And your second question was whether you should have it jointly with your wife or separate. For most couples, I say joint is fine. It kind of depends, though, a little bit on how your wife feels about this whole situation about the parents moving in and how much of the family resources you're going to devote towards helping them. If there's going to be any conflict about that, maybe it is better to have somewhat separate finances so that you know you have this amount to devote to your parents and that it's just not an issue with your wife. Uh, And then after building up the emergency fund, what should you do? First thing I recommend to everyone is get the match from your 401k. Make sure you're doing that. After that, maybe consider a Roth IRA if you're not earning too much. The great thing about the Roth, besides the fact that you get the tax free growth, is that you can access the money you contribute to the Roth before age 59 and a half, tax and penalty free if you need it. Again, you're in the situation where you might have some unexpected expenses. So I think a Roth is a, is a great place to keep money that you may need to tap before you're 59 and a half. Uh, and the other thing I'll just say about this is, you're taking on a lot of responsibility.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Chances are your city or county or state will have resources to help elderly folks, so I would see what's available to them, which, what any sort of resources or services that you, your parents are eligible for. Um, and we've talked about this in a couple of episodes last year that I would recommend. So we had a couple of folks in from ARP, Amy Goyer on September 4th talking about how to be a caregiver, and then Dr. Gene Axius on October 23rd about long-term care and community long-term care. So just listen to those because I think they had some other good tips about taking care of older relatives.
0: Alright, next question comes from Tom. How should I think about asset allocation when dollar-cost averaging into a 529 plan for a newborn grandchild? these Parents, they bringing it. One option I'm considering is a U.S. total market index fund. The other option combines international, emerging market, and real estate indexes with a U.S. index fund. It seems the experts, quotes, on financial shows favor diversification internationally, but the U.S. market seems to has seems to have outperformed all others over the past five to ten years. Of course, past performance does not guarantee future results, and reversion to the mean is likely. But it seems that the U.S. economy is forecast to grow faster than Europe and China, at least. In the near future,
1: so I'm going to agree with the quote-unquote experts mainly mm-hmm. because I think when you're looking at um, diversification, you can't make bets on really what's going to grow faster or slower unless you want to just you know make bets. Um, if you are looking at being kind of a um, hedging your bets again against all the different asset classes you're going to diversify and make sure that you're taking gains from any place that offers it and not thinking, well, you know, China didn't do as well last year, so I'm going to maybe think they're doing better this year. It just leads to a lot of sort of gamesmanship each year in your asset allocation. And overall, you have at a newborn's age, you've got almost 20 years for these assets to grow. So looking at the last five or 10 is probably not really relevant for making that sort of long-term decision. All right, next
0: question comes from Mike. I know that taking Social Security at age 62 means that my monthly amount will be 70% of what it would be if I waited until age 67, but if I was heavily invested in good stocks and market funds, my portfolio could grow in retirement more than it would if I had to withdraw more because I deferred taking Social Security until later. What do you think?
2: Well, Mike, so everyone in America has a full retirement age. Uh, For anyone born 1960 or later, it is 67. So I assume that's what Mike's situation is. Um, Full retirement age is an important concept with various planning strategies. But the first thing I want to make sure Mike knows is that you can actually delay up to 70 to have your benefit grow. So that's something to consider. Um, My bottom line these days, really, with determining when to take Social Security is basically go and use a good tool. Uh, and there's some good free ones on the internet. There's one from ARP, one from Financial Engines. You'll find a good one at opensocialsecurity.com. There's one called Maximize My Social Security that you have to pay $40 for, but uh, it's highly recommended by many people that I respect, so I would recommend you do that. because it's, it's Especially when you're married, you need to look at the numbers. You need to put in your specific benefits. It runs the analysis and it says, like, well, you should take this much. You should take it at this age. Your spouse should take it at this age. Um, so I highly recommend that. And uh, the the advice has been really over the last ten or so years to delay as much as possible. But it depends on a lot of factors. And and I think Mike brings up a good one in that. Well, what if I if I delay it? That means I have to take more money out of my portfolio, which means I'm selling stocks that might have great returns. So, I just think, in the end, it's very individual. I think it's a worthwhile point. But you have to be pretty confident that your stocks are going to do well, solid double-digit returns. Because if instead you you take Social Security early, hoping that your portfolio will grow, but instead it doesn't, taking it early would have been a mistake. So, there's a certain amount of, like, what's your risk tolerance involved in Mm. here, too.
0: right. next question comes from Raj. My parents bought a house for $189,000 and borrowed against the equity when it increased in value. When they were having trouble making payments, I helped out my, my parents by refinancing the loan. The property was worth $215,000 at the time. I put $28,000 down and there was a loan of $166,000. My dad did a quit claim, giving the title to my mom and me. A few years later, we refinanced again and my mom did a quit claim deed, giving title to my wife and me. What is my cost basis since I kind of inherited it? Second, I have a separate primary residence up until last year's tax filing. I have treated my parents' house as a second property as a way to increase my itemized deductions. However, the new code, tax code has a $24,000 standard deduction and my itemized deductions are falling well short of it. Therefore, I am considering converting the house my parents live in to a rental property. This will result in passive losses and will help reduce my taxable income. Does this strategy make sense?
1: All right, so first we're gonna tackle the what is my cost basis question uh, because there were a couple of terms thrown around I think in in Raj's original communication around is this a gift, is it inherited, Did did I buy it? And I think it breaks down into two transactions. So the first one is when he refinanced the house for his parents he gave up $28,000 and in return received half of a house. And so most people I think would call that a sale. Um, And so you exchange some property for things received in return. Um, So at that time, he received half the house, which which was valued at $215,000 in total. So his half would be 107,500. Now, that's a little bit off, so if you look at what he put in, he put in 28000 and he's taking on, in theory, half the mortgage as well, and that gets him to one eleven. but let's just call it one oh seven five for now. Um, and then the second transaction is on the second refinance when his mom gives him the property, the second half of the property. He didn't put anything into it at that point. He was just receiving this gift. So, again, stepping into the shoes of the parent, you're taking on their cost basis in the house, which regardless of what it was worth, they paid 189 dollars for it. So that half is gonna be $94,500. Combine that with his original refinance of $107,500, I get a cost basis of $202,000. So I think different people could look at those series of transactions differently. So it could be that, You know, he gifted his parents $28,000 on the refinance, and they gifted him half of the house. That ends up being worse for him. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, you know, call it 202. Um, What your cost basis is is going to be important if you then convert that property to a rental because you're going to be able to depreciate the property. Um, at the lower of fair market value or cost basis. So depending on whether the current value is above or below that $202,000, that's going to determine how much you can write off from a depreciation standpoint. The other thing to consider is that when you're renting to family members, um, the IRS considers that to be basically a not-for-profit type rental situation, so you could only write off your expenses to get to a net of zero. In order to combat that, you could charge your parents market rent. Um, So if they're paying market rent already, you're good. Otherwise, you might have to increase the rent or consider bringing in someone else that can increase the rent in order to fully capture those tax benefits that he talked about.
2: The bottom line, as far as I'm concerned, is get a good accountant.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Is that who you call in in a situation like this as
0: as an accountant to help you understand it?
1: Yeah, definitely. And in the past, it sounds like maybe there were some gifts that weren't accounted for on gift tax returns. You might need to catch that up a little bit. You might need to do some digging on um, how much cost basis you can really find. A lot of times people have additional cost basis from buying a house for all these transaction costs that can increase their cost basis, ultimately. So, It can be worth it to, to find someone to dig through the documents, and if you can increase your cost basis by $5,000, you've avoided tax on that $5,000 in the future, so it pays for itself.
0: Alright, next question comes from Edgar. I've always thought that while I am earning a salary, my income is higher than it will be when I'm retired. However, a few times on the show, I've heard Bro say your income could be higher in retirement. How could that be? My wife and I are 53 with a nest egg of about 700000 and are putting away a minimum of 15% of our 114000 income for retirement. We are a one-person earner household. We have a mortgage that is targeted to be paid off at age 62, at which time I want to think about stopping work, at least the miserable 9-to-5 I hold now."
2: So, um, when you look at lifetime earnings as well as lifetime expenses, when you start off in your early 20s, both grow very rapidly. At a, usually, it's, it's certainly people who have professional degrees or professional professions at a rate that exceeds inflation. It starts to level off in your 40s, and for most people, their income peaks in their late 40s to early 50s. And at that point, it just basically keeps up with inflation, or in many cases, it doesn't keep up with inflation, especially if you're in like service industries or something like that. So when I have said. That it's possible you could have a higher income in retirement. I'm generally talking about people who are younger. So if you're just starting out in your 20s, your income is hopefully going is lower now I mean hopefully you'll have a higher income in retirement because you're going to be a good fool and you're going to save a lot and have a decent portfolio and retire. That's why we often say younger for younger people the roth makes the most sense it's because they're in a lower tax bracket today. It has nothing to do with the fact that they are further away from retirement. It's not about time. It's about being in that lower tax bracket. Now, in your situation, Edgar, you're 53. You're at your probably peak lifetime earnings. In your situation, you're absolutely right. You probably, your income probably will be lower once you retire. And for a situation like if you were making a decision between a Roth and a traditional, the traditional would probably make more sense. I love the fact also that you're planning to pay off your mortgage before you retire. I'm a big fan of that. I would say that just given the numbers you've provided, you might want to see a financial planner before you retire to make sure that you have enough. $700,000 is a nice-sized um, nest egg, but depending on which guideline you look at, and we've talked about these in previous episodes, like Fidelity who puts out these guidelines and T. Rowe Price puts out these guidelines, you're either right on track or a little bit behind. So As I recommend for everyone, really, when you're a few years within retirement, just go see a qualified, fee only financial planner to make sure that you have enough before you finally quit. And by the way, I'm sorry you don't like your job. One of your goals (laughs) Uh might be just to find another job that you like from like age 62 to
0: 68.
2: Yeah. Or sooner. Or sooner.
0: Why wait? All right. Last question today comes from Jerry. I have a question about 401k company stock. I have been told by Aon Hewitt that at the time of my retirement, I can elect that all my company stock be converted into actual stock, which means it will be considered as capital gains, not regular income. Do you know if this is true?
1: So some of the, part of this rumor is true, and we're going to talk about the specifics. This is referring to a provision called net unrealized appreciation, which is specific to when you own your employer's stock within your 401k plan. So normally I say don't care about cost basis inside a retirement account because it's all going to come out as ordinary income anyway. In this specific case, you do want to track your cost basis inside your retirement account for employer securities. And the reason is that when you retire, you have 12 months to take a full liquidation of your 401 K. To get this treatment. So, a full liquidation doesn't mean you have to cash out everything, but it has to leave the 401k structure. And you can take your employer stock and put it into a taxable account. And rather than being taxed on the full value, which would be the traditional treatment of any sort of distribution, you're only taxed on the cost basis of that stock. So, if you've been working with the same employer for a long time and kind of accumulated little by little, you can also. Select like the lowest cost basis stock to hang on to and keep outside, and the benefit of that is that you are paying on a lower um, distribution amount. And then, when it comes out, you're taxed at cap- long-term capital gains rates as you dispose of that stock. So that's a pretty beneficial treatment um, to you know get stock out and not have to pay those. Ordinary tax rates. It can be a big tax hit at once, though, if you've accumulated a lot of stock. Um, and so, again, I think this is another area where you would want someone to come in and take a look yeah. at your specific situation.
2: Yeah. So the, the employer stock can get very complicated. You want to make sure you do it right, and you want to make sure you're working with someone who not only knows the rules about employer stock in general, but has uh, a good handle on your particular plan.
0: All right, that covers it for the questions today. Megan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been great having you, as always. All right, time for some listener feedback. I'm ready. All right, so it turns out, remember how we get I'm ready um, to be fed? We got a
2: <laughs> we
0: got a postcard. <laughs> that doesn't even make sense. Remember our listener um, who writes in with the postcards from often from Asia, and he listens while swimming. Yes. Okay, so I messed up his last postcard. Um, I wrote that he has no fixed income, but actually. He writes, I live in hotels year-round because I have no fixed home. I can see how the H in home could have been mangled and read as income, thus becoming no fixed income. I think it's probably all my bad. But anyway, it turns out he's a pilot on 747 cargo jets. And because of how crew scheduling is done in the cargo aviation business, he writes, most of our trips are a single 17-day long or longer trip flying back and forth across the ocean or doing laps around the planet. Of course, my airline pays for my hotel for these days, and then I just pay for hotels out-of-pocket for the other 13. I'm not paying for rent for those 17 days of work when I wouldn't be sleeping in my own bed anyway.
2: Wow. Yeah, kind of cool. That's kind of exciting.
0: Yeah, it is kind of exciting. Anyway, so Jim invites us uh, whenever we're in Singapore um, he's going to buy us a drink. Nice. <laughs> we'll have to tape in Singapore. All right. Graham has a concern with you trying to teach an English lesson.
2: Uh-oh. What did I do now? You know
0: what you did. Just to let you know, us Brits do not use the expression, a dog's breakfast. Oh, that We one. use the expression, a dog's dinner only, and it means a mess. As in, that work you have done is awful. You have made a right dog's dinner out of it. Hope that helps. Love your
2: show. I, But just in my own defense... Let's hear it. The term dog's breakfast came from an article I was quoting. So I didn't come up with the term. Dog's was...
0: dinner has that alliteration. Well, that, yeah, it's that's better. true. It's that's way true.
2: I All right. Think, I think I want to hear that dog's dinner line again, but with the accent. Oh, gosh. <laughs>
0: uh,. That work you've done is awful. You've made right dogs' dinner
2: out of it. Very nice. <laughs> that was
0: like my chimney
2: sweep British. <laughs> Jolly olive
1: That's so bad. <laughs> That's so
0: bad. I'm so sorry, Graham. I can do other equally horrible British accents. That's just one. Okay. All right. Here we go. So Dave is riding with another correction. So, way to go! I don't know if you said this or not, but apparently on the show uh, we talked about getting an FHA home loan and paying PMI, and that it drops off when you reach 20% in equity. Dave writes that today's FHA loans. That's not the case! PMI never drops from the loan payment. The only way to escape PMI on an FHA loan is to pay off the loan, i.e. selling the house or refinancing it to a conventional.
2: Well, if it's incorrect, I'm sure I didn't say it. But there uh, you go. There no, you it, go. It may have been me. I don't
0: know. All right. Next uh, from Ernie. Ernie listened to our podcast about um, preparing to have kids. He writes, my wife and I teach a marriage preparation class to engage couples to help encourage everyone to do the estate planning. We say that a will and an estate plan is a way to show your family your love for your family. If one or both parents suddenly dies, having the will and estate plan will make things easier for the surviving members of the family at a difficult time. Your love for your family will be shown since you are helping them through this difficult, difficult time, even though you are not there. So there you go. estate in
2: that, is, Get that's your pretty, est- that's that that's nice? That's a great sentiment. Yeah, It's a
0: lovely sentiment. Get your estate plan going. Uh, We also have some postcards. We got Leslie sent one from St. Lucia, but originally from London. Uh, Love the show. Thanks to 25 years as a Motley Fool subscriber.
2: Isn't that awesome? That's great.
0: Um, And then said a bunch of other really nice things. Uh, Shoots, good old Shoots, shoots. Said a card from Haver, Montana. Shoots, I'm going to be in Montana this August, so maybe I'll see you on the streets of Missoula at some point. Say (laughs) hi if you see me, and thanks for the card. Uh, from Haver. He wanted me to quiz you guys on how to say Haver, and he assumed I knew how to pronounce it, but I don't. So now I feel bad, but I, I'm being honest. Haver. Haver? He said, it's pronounced like the old song. I don't want her, you can have her.
2: You can Haver. You can Haver. <laughs> She's too fate for me.
0: Now you're now you're speaking with a phone accent, aren't you? Okay.
2: <laughs> Margie.
0: And we also got a couple of postcards from I think it's saying Anon and Anonymous, two anonymous people. Um, But they're saying from the top to the bottom of the world. They they sent us postcards from Bhutan and I guess from Antarctica. It's a little penguin. Oh, look at that guy. Isn't that cute? Um, By the way, we've been practicing FIRE long before it had quotes, and we've been able to now see many beautiful people and lands around the world. That's Mm. great. FIRE,
2: of course, standing for financial independence. Retire Retire early.
0: early. They've been doing it before it had a name. Um, And we also got a card from Malta from Alan and Roxanne. Um, And they decided to save a few dollars and mail it once they got home, which I am totally all right with. I think that makes perfect financial sense. So thank you guys for keeping the postcards coming in. It's almost the. Summer is just around the corner, so yes. I'm looking forward to finding out where all you guys are going for spring break and summer and all that good stuff.
2: You want to repeat the address just to get everyone ready?
0: Sure! Get get your pens ready and send us your postcards from all around the world. Uh, our address is The Motley Fool, 2000 Duke Street, Alexandria, Virginia, 22314. Alright, that's the show! It's edited T G-I-Fingly by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, Camp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.